Welcome to Life in Accounting, the Where Accountants Go podcast. Life in Accounting is the podcast for everyday heroes like you working in the accounting profession. Are you ready to hear from accounting influencers, thought leaders, visionaries, and other professionals leading change in the accounting world? Then stay tuned for Mark Goldman, a CPA, the owner of Where Accountants Go, and your host. Welcome to Life in Accounting. Owning your own business is not for everybody, and, and I certainly would not recommend it for everybody. That clip was from this week's guest, Craig Fuller. Craig's a CPA and was a partner in the firm he founded for 30 years, but then transitioned into full-time ministry and now fills the role of executive director at Daily Bread Ministries, a nonprofit that distributes over 6 million pounds of food each and every year. Hello, I'm Mark Goldman, a CPA and your host for Life in Accounting, the Where Accountants Go podcast. If you've ever thought about how the skill set you acquire in accounting could be applied to other fields you're interested in, this definitely is going to be a valuable episode for you. Also, I mentioned it in the interview, but if you find this one particularly valuable, then make sure you check out the previous episode with Harriet Helmley. She's also a CPA that founded Nonprofit, and we interviewed her a few months back. That and all our other episodes can be found on our parent website, www.whereaccountantsgo.com. Let's go ahead and get started. Here's Craig. Well, good afternoon, Craig. Thank you very much for taking the time out for this interview. I'm sure you've got quite a bit on your plate these days with Daily Bread. Well, I do, but I thought this would be fun and interesting, so I'm glad to do it. Thank you. Yes, it will be fun. It will be fun. Well, after I met you at the chamber function, I thought you'd be an excellent guest to bring on the show. Personally, I think it's fascinating when accounting professionals are able to transition into other areas and still use that knowledge base and that experience, you know, to benefit in the new area. But also, I I thought the story of your success that, that you were mentioning to me in your own practice in public accounting, plus that transition you know, into charitable work would really be beneficial for some of our listeners. So I definitely want to get into the, the charitable piece. But first, if you don't mind, let's start at the beginning so that our listeners can get an idea of who you are, so to speak. How did you decide to pursue accounting in the first place? What, what brought you to the profession? Well, when I went, I went to college right out of high school and, and I went to Texas Tech University and when I went there, my intention was to go to law school, and so I was majoring in pre-law. And somewhere in there, it dawned on me that if I didn't go to law school, I wasn't sure how good that major would be, pre-law. And was also taking an accounting class at the time, and it was really easy for me. I hadn't always made all that great. Of, I was more of a C student in high school, and but this accounting class was just really easy for me, and, and the professor was 
really good and bringing me on and encouraging me. And so I just started taking accounting classes and ended up with an accounting degree. So I just kind of fell into it. But I know for sure today that's exactly where I was supposed to be. So anyway, I finished at Texas Tech and all, and I did, which is a little bit ironic story here is my wife and I just moved to San Antonio about three years ago. But when I graduated from college in 1973, again, I wanted to go to law school. So I had taken the LSAT. That was the first or second year that Texas Tech had a law school, and it was really hard to get into, and I, I did not get into it. The only school where I got accepted to law school was St. Mary's in San Antonio. Hmm. And my wife would not move to San Antonio. <laughs> which is kind of ironic since that's where we are today. So instead of going to law school, I just uh, started looking for jobs. And I took a job in in Amarillo, Texas. It was the oldest accounting firm in the state. It was probably the first accounting firm in the state of Texas. It's called H.V. Robertson and Company. And Mr. Robertson had had the number two certificate issued in Texas. So I worked for that firm in Amarillo, Texas for a year or so, and then a a smaller firm in Dalhart, Texas, where I grew up, recruited me to move up there and go to work for them. So I worked for that accounting firm for a, a year or two, and then one of their partners and myself decided to branch off and form our our own firm. Okay. And uh, I think we did that in about. It it was probably two or three years after I'd graduated from college. So so I was a pretty young partner in an accounting firm at the time. Wow. I'm just curious. Did you you start in tax or audit or or both when you were with Robertson? Yes. When I started at H.V. Robertson, it was a pretty large firm in Amarillo. And so they did a lot of audit work. And yes, I started out. The first day on the job was in a county tax office, and I sat there with a 10-key adding machine. It was electric. (laughs) I'm not that old, but it was electric, but it was a 10-key adding machine, and I just added up tax rolls all day long for about six weeks. (laughs) So that was my first job. Okay. But they, they had a tax practice also, and then when I started my own firm, it was the majority of the work was tax work, but we, we also did audit work. So we did both. And you said this was two to three years after graduation that you were starting the firm, correct? I, that is correct. I had a partner. Uh, two of us went together, and the partner, he was 10 years older than I was and had experience in, at the time, one of the big eight firms. So I had a good partner and a, and a good mentor to start the firm. And so we practiced together for about 10 years. Then he decided he wanted to get out of the practice and go into banking. So I bought him out of the practice. Actually, at that point, we, I merged my firm back in with H.V. Robertson and Company, the firm I'd gone to work for in the beginning. And I was part of that firm for several years and then several of their partners died and left, and, and I split back off and practiced. I was a sole practitioner for, uh, I guess, the next 10 or 15 years. Okay. I'm curious. Before you merged back into H.V. Robertson, 
And then it, after that, just to give us an idea, more, more or less, how many employees did you have? How, how large a firm? Oh, our firm on our own, our own firm in Dalhart, Texas, we had about uh, 10 to 12 employees. Okay. Yeah, we had a good, a good size firm. We had Dalhart, Texas is north of Amarillo, and it's a very, I guess you would say, lucrative farming area. So we had a lot of, lot of large farm clients. So it, it was a good practice. Okay. Also, so you, you went into business with uh, this other gentleman. Did either one of you have clients going into this, or did you just quit your job cold turkey and yeah, start no. it? Or how, how did that work? We had, we, when we left, we were working for this firm in the same town, and we, we both had some clients. Okay. And so I left that, and at, at, a, at that same time, I was appointed the to be the county auditor for for the county. At that time, they were just starting to to require counties to have auditors, full-time auditors. So I took that job. It was an appointed job, and although it was not full-time, so I was able to have that that job and start the practice. So, but we did take some clients with us and just grew the practice over the years. Okay. She had a little bit of a, a cushion with the county auditor part-time position or yes. safety net. <laughs> That's correct. That's a smart move, very smart move. Did you always see yourself as an entrepreneur or, or I guess, what, what led you to that decision in the first place to go out and yeah, I, try out? I don't, I'm not sure I had – I don't know that I'd ever thought about it too much, but the firm that my partner and I were both in together – we just didn't, you know, we just didn't see eye to eye with the other partners. So it okay. was just really the only thing to do was to, to step out. I mean, obviously, I could have left and moved to a bigger town and, you know, gone to work for a large firm somewhere. But we wanted to, you know, raise our children in a small town. And we just chose to stay there and, and start our own practice. So I guess that's, we just kind of did it, you know, it wasn't, didn't put a lot of thought into it, just said, okay, this is what we can do, and let's go do it. Okay. What did you enjoy most about that time? Well, obviously, you have a little bit more freedom, you know, to decide how you're going to operate your practice, and even down to if, if you, you want to be gone or not be gone or, or such. So there is probably a little more freedom in owning your own practice, although when you own the practice, you have however many clients you've got, they're all your boss. I think I enjoyed mostly just uh, a little bit of freedom that came with it and the ability to direct what we wanted, what kind of practice we wanted to have. Okay. You know, I just, I'm curious because you're, you're reflecting on this and you're mentioning freedom. I, I know a lot of individuals that have went out on their own because they wanted to be their own boss. And in the beginning, it's like that. And then eventually, you know, instead of the firm working for them, they're working for their firm. <laughs> it sometimes becomes a lack of freedom, you know, for some well, individuals. What it, did you it, do to manage? Yeah, it does. I mean, you know, during busy seasons, you work a lot. But then there are some times when you can say, okay, we've, we've been working 80, 80 or 90 hours a week for all through tax season. So, so now we're going to you know, cut back for a little bit. And uh, so you have that, a little bit of that freedom. 
But owning your own business is not for everybody. And I certainly would not recommend it for everybody. A lot of people just don't have the discipline, you know, to operate your own business. So, so I would be very careful about encouraging somebody to do that. There's a lot to say for, for going to work for, you know, a larger firm. And although you might not have freedom or make as much money in the, in the beginning, you know, in the long run, people I've known who have done that, especially with the, the large firms, come out the end of their career with really good retirements. And there's sure nothing wrong with that. Okay. Do you have any thoughts on how someone can tell that they may be successful, you know, owning their own firm or any traits you think that are important? Because you you were there a long time. (laughs) Yeah, I think, again, it has to do with how you can work with people, how you can lead people. You, You certainly have to be a leader. You have to be able to lead. And accountants aren't the easiest to lead. So, You've got to be able to lead people. I think you have to just look back at your, maybe your background and see if there were any entrepreneurial things in your life. I mean, did you grow up lemonade stands or whatever, you know, wanting to do that kind of stuff? It's something you've, you've kind of got to kind of feel out. I, I'm thankful that I went to work for a, for a firm for a few years. I would definitely recommend someone go to work for an accounting firm for a few years to see what it's like. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. I I totally agree. And at the time we're recording this, the the podcasts that have just been released over the last few weeks are individuals that largely came out of industry and either purchased a practice or had a few clients on the side and and decided to to give it a shot. They've done well. There was a lot of midnight oil that was burned, you know, learning what they needed to learn about systems and, and that kind of thing. But I, I think you can definitely learn a lot about systems that way. Yes, you can. Is there anything you would have done differently looking back on – how many years was it that you had your own practice? Let's see. I started that practice in about 1975 and or six or seven, somewhere in there. I, I probably had the practice 30 years. Okay. Close to 30 years. Yeah, the, the only thing I think I've – Looking back, I might have done different was uh, I, I sold the practice when I was in my early 50s, and I, I sold the practice and immediately left. I think the one thing I would do different, I think I would have owned the practice longer and then sold it. I, I did sell it to someone who was working for me, but I probably would have sold it over a period of time while I was still there. Oh, okay. So there was a and, longer and, transition? Right. I would have made it a longer transition. Mine was I was ready to go into ministry. I felt like, like God was calling me to plant a church. And I actually planted this, a church in the same town I had my practice, thinking that I would, you know, pastor on Sundays. And again, I had a pretty large staff and thought hmm. that I would could run the accounting practice during the week. That was kind of my plan, and the church grew really fast, and I couldn't do both. And so I just chose to sell the practice to someone who was working for me and go into ministry full-time. But I probably I would have made that transition a little bit longer. I also probably would have not sold it to one person. I would have probably I would have raised up at least two, you know, maybe three people that could buy the practice together. 
instead of selling it outright to one person and, and me moving on, I would have done it a little bit different. So 30 years from the mid-70s, so we're talking somewhere around 2005, is that? Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So a little over 10 years ago, is the practice still in existence? The young man who bought it practiced for, well, he, but he ended up selling it. He ended up selling it to another firm in the same town. So I guess it is sort of there, but merged in with another firm now. Okay. Okay. I was just curious. Uh-huh. So so you, you felt the calling to plant a church and go into ministry, and and you pursued that, and it sounds like it, it grew a whole lot faster than you, than you were anticipating. I, I'm curious, what time period was there between when you decided to plant the church and then when you needed to go ahead and transition the firm? One year. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> One year. Yeah, <laughs> the church grew really rapidly, and I just felt like I couldn't handle both. And I'd, I'd already, I guess you would say, committed to God to, to go into ministry. And so I just sold the practice and went into full-time ministry. Okay. I pastored that church for five years. All right. Raised up a young man to take over. And, and that church is still in existence. And then it's interesting story how I had met a gentleman from from Northern California that was part of a he led the a region of a denominational church, and he recruited me to come out there and wanted me to plant a church, and so I moved to Northern Nevada, actually the Lake Tahoe area. Okay. And took a job with a large church as the executive pastor, and I did that for four years, and then I went up to Lake Tahoe and planted a church, and I pastored it for five years and raised up a young man to take over. So I pastored for about 14, 14 or 15 years. Okay. And so that would have been like three years ago. We, we always knew, we were, we, my wife and I were both raised in Texas, and when we left to go to Nevada, we knew it was for a period of time, we were thinking about 10 years, and that we would come back to Texas. We always knew we wanted to live in Texas. So when I stepped away, stepped down from pastoring the last church, we, we moved to, to San Antonio because we had two, two of our boys lived here. Oh, they were already here? Uh-huh. Okay. So we had been coming here and you know visiting them and looking around and liked it here in San Antonio, and so we just decided to move. And I actually thought I was going to retire. Based, you know, I was <laughs> 65 and thinking, okay, I'll retire. But I always thought that I would, even though you say you're going to retire, you still want to do something. And so I had planned on either finding a young man that needed some help in planting a church or finding a nonprofit organization to go to work for. And that, that worked out. <laughs> How did you come across Daily Bread? I mean, they... You hear about them locally, but they're not a, a huge nonprofit like the United Way. Or, or no, it's, uh, although it is a large, pretty large ministry, it's 20 years old. Oh, okay. And Daily Bread was started by a gentleman here named Seth Keen. And he, 20 years ago when he started it, he had a vending machine business. And he was working with uh, Promise Keepers. 
and he would be picking up these inner city pastors and taking them to Promise Keeper events, and he would hear them talk about the people in their churches, which is the inner city churches in San Antonio, not having enough food to eat. Well, his vending machines were in hotels, and he was watching hotels throw lots of perfectly good food away. Okay. So he decided to start collecting that food, taking it to the to the pastors, to those churches. And those churches, you know, would have food pantries where they could distribute the food. So that's how the ministry started. And today we receive food. We get food donated to us from Costco, Cisco, Benny, Keith, H-E-B, Coca-Cola. All of they, We get food, which is perfectly good food, not out of date, high quality food. And a lot of it is delivered to our warehouse. Some of it we do pick up. But we bring this food in and then we have about 125 ministries, mostly churches, that come and pick food up from us and take back to their food pantries. So today we're resourcing 125 nonprofits, mostly churches, located in the poorest parts of San Antonio. We're resourcing them with food and training, training in the way to how to... I guess you could say for 20 years, Daily Bread Ministries has given people a fish, and we want to spend the next 20 years teaching them how to fish. But the way I got there was my wife and I, we live out by between Garden Ridge and New Braunfels. Mm -hmm. And so we go to a church in New Braunfels, and... We'd been going to church there for a few months, and I just felt the Lord telling me that I needed to get to know the pastor. So I said, okay, and called the pastor up and said, hey, could we get together? And anyway, we we talked a little bit and found out we had a lot of things in common. And he said, let's get together. And I said, okay, I'll I'll make sure we do that. And at that time, Thanksgiving was coming and Christmas was coming. I just put it off. And finally, January of last year, 2016, I just felt God saying, you need to call the pastor and talk to him. You need to call and talk to him. So I did just sit down with him and just shared my story and my experiences and said, hey, I'm not looking for a job, but here's what I can do. And he said, well, one of our elders is the chairman of the board of this large nonprofit, and they're looking for a guy like you. Do you mind if I give him your resume? And I said, no, that'd be fine. Well, that was the chairman of the board of Daily Bread Ministries, and he called me the next day, and they started pursuing me from that point on. And uh, I went to work for them this past June, June 1. So I've been there about eight months. So okay. Was the chairman the founder? or No. The, that by no, the founder was, was there running. He was the, the you know, executive director of the ministry, but he had a board of directors, and, and this chairman... Uh, actually lives in, in New Braunfels and just happened to be on the board. And the founder and the board had been planning for about a year to f- try to find somebody to take his oh. place. So it was a planned situation. So I just have to ask, because you've mentioned a couple times that I wasn't looking for a job. I knew I'd be doing something, but maybe not full-time. So is it a full-time position that you're uh, in? Yes. yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is full-time. and. We have 10 employees. We receive and give away about 6 million pounds of food a year. 
again, we're resourcing these ministries, these 125 ministries or churches, most of them are in the located in kind of the poorest pockets of San Antonio. And they, they are impacting about 50,000 people. So our ministry is, is impacting that many people. With our partners, our, the churches that partner with us and where they're located through the city, we really feel like we're uniquely positioned to maybe make a difference with poverty in San Antonio. And San Antonio is a pretty poor, poor city. There's a lot of poverty in San Antonio. In preparing for this, I knew what Daily Bread did on the surface, and, and I think if anybody asked me, I could say, well, they help distribute food you know, to uh-huh. ministries, but outside of that, I really couldn't describe how it was done, so I, I, in preparation, I, I went to the website, and I watched the Follow the Milk video. Uh-huh. That is a good tool. It helps you visualize what's, what's happening. That's, well, let, let me explain that milk a little bit. We pick up every day, every school day, milk from 19 schools in the Harlingdale School District. Okay. So what happens is the milk, when they buy the milk and it comes into their coolers, if they set the milk out for the, for the kids to pick it up, it, the, the milk that's not picked up that day, they cannot use the next day. Oh. So they save it for us, and we pick it up every day. And so from 19 school districts, we pick up about 200 crates, you know, of milk cartons a day. So that's from 19 schools, and there's probably over 300 schools in San Antonio. So you can imagine that the rest of those schools, that milk's being discarded because we're just picking up from 19 but we pick up a lot of milk, so that milk is getting through our ministry partners to children, mostly children who, who wouldn't otherwise get the milk to drink. So it is really an interesting ministry. I'm curious, how long, how long do you have to get that into the hands of the individual that's going to consume it? I mean, <clears throat> is that something that needs to be done within a day? We're located out on East Riddiman. It was the old Lax Furniture Warehouse showroom. Okay. It's a huge, huge warehouse. Large, and yeah, large warehouse. A large warehouse, 170,000 square feet. Okay. So we were able to buy that a few years ago, and we have a huge cooler inside. So we have room to store probably 20 pallets of milk at a time. So we'll bring the milk in, and it's usually two or three days before it goes out. But it goes out fairly quickly. It's all in date, been in the cooler all the time, so it's high-quality milk. So we have a couple of days to turn it around. But our 125 ministry partners are allowed. We distribute food on Monday, Wednesday, Friday mornings, and they're allowed to come twice a week. So generally, a ministry partner will pick up probably a 12 to 15 cases of milk. And so if we have 30, 30 of those three times a week, we move it pretty fast. I don't know if you can answer this, but I'm very ignorant in this area. You said you give away 6 million pounds of food every year. How does that compare to the food bank? 
Uh, the food bank would give away, first of all, the food bank doesn't give it away. They do sell it. It's it's priced by the pound. It's inexpensive, but they do sell it. Oh, okay. But they they will probably move 10 times that amount of food in a year. They are able to move a lot of food. The difference is they're just giving away food. We're actually giving food to ministries that will work with the people that are receiving the food and try to determine why is it they are needing to come get free food. And of course, our goal is to, is to get them off of that, to lift them up out of poverty and, and help them get jobs. Okay. But one of the reasons Daily Bread was so interested in me was because of my accounting background. Okay. They were happy that I had a few years of pastoring experience in the ministry in pastoring churches, but they really were looking for someone with a business background. And that's kind of what I want your listeners to, to hear is that mm-hmm. that accounting background, you will never lose it. You, you can always utilize it. And for us, it's obviously it's important to have that kind of a background in, in operating the business. But more important than that is being able to converse and communicate with donors. Okay. Most donors, when I'm able to tell them that I'm a CPA, I mean, their ears perk up. CPAs, I I believe you could tell me this, but I believe are still the most trusted professional there is. So when when a donor hears that you're a CPA, they're going to listen. And so very beneficial. Yeah, I wanted to ask you that because you know, at the 20,000-foot level, well, yes, it's, you know, it's obvious that business background would be beneficial in, you know, running any kind of organization. But to make it very real, what, what are a couple ways you think on a daily basis your accounting background and, and then business background makes a difference in what you're doing? You gave me one, obviously. Yeah, and take this this particular nonprofit organization, Daily Bread Ministries, had never had anyone in-house that had any kind of an accounting background. Yes, we had bookkeepers, but nobody that could look at a budget or prepare a budget or really think through certain expenditures and how they're going to affect the ministry. And that happens every day. Fortunately, I do have a really good, actually, she does have a degree in accounting that's doing the bookkeeping. But for me, it's very easy, and I'll get a question from her nearly every day, and I can give her the answer pretty quickly because I can just look at it and tell her what's going on. Okay, wonderful. There's four questions I end every podcast with, and I want to be respectful of your time. I have one more question, though. So you've okay. been there a little over six months. I mean, what are, what are your goals for the upcoming years? Well, again, I kind of mentioned that. I think for the last 20 years, we've given people a fish, and now we want to teach people to fish. So our mission is to connect resources with needs. So we're very big on going out and finding people that have the resources that our churches need and connecting them. For instance, we've just partnered with a nonprofit organization. It's called South Texas Children's Home, and they operate a job training program where they teach people 
most of them are people like we're distributing food to. They teach people how to, not necessarily a particular skill, but they teach them how to go get a job, how to interview for a job, how to to do a resume, how to talk to an employer, how to not talk to an employer. So we bring that kind of training to our churches, who in turn are using that to train the people that are coming to get food. We want to teach our ministry partners how to help people without hurting them. I'm sure most people will agree that Our government over the last 50 years has more or less just enabled people to to remain on welfare, Mm -hmm. just hand out, hand out. We want to change that. We want to help people get a skill, learn how to get a job, and help climb up out of poverty. So I would say that's my biggest goal. Okay. Okay. Yeah, to to conquer poverty, not just feed it today. Yeah. Yeah, and one of the other things that I was able in the 15 years, or at least the last 10 years that I was in ministry, I was working with a large organization that actually did training for churches. The name of the organization was Growing Healthy Churches. So I can I bring that experience with me to help try to train. Most of these churches are inner city, you know, smaller inner city churches, and they lack training and resources. So that's our goal is to train these ministry partners to to help the people they're serving without hurting them. And I think it's probably a a 20-year job. Now you you said you have about 11 employees, is that? We do, 11 or 12. Okay, 11 or 12. Is your vision that the training is going to be provided by connecting resources or or do you see, you know, building up more we we will do some we will do some training, but we're we're more interested in finding other organizations that that do the training, and we bring them maybe into our warehouse or and connect them with the churches. Another thing that we have that I haven't mentioned is we're just in the process of completing a three thousand square foot state of the art commercial kitchen in our facility. And our vision is to operate a culinary school for low-income people. Culinary training, first of all, if you live, in, if you live anywhere in America and you, you want to go somewhere for a culinary experience, San Antonio will be third on your list because of the diversity and the culture and the number of restaurants we have. So there's a real need for the culinary that's why you have Culinary Institute of America and you have St. Phillips that operates one. We've got a couple of high schools now that are operating culinary schools. But the problem with those schools is they're very expensive. It costs thirty-five dollars to $40,000 to go to the Culinary Institute. So we want to bring some training to the lower income, the people that need to get jobs at a reasonable price. So that's also one of the goals we have. Is this something that would be even more economical than the community college training, or is, are you working with yes. them? Or is it, yes. Oh. No, it, it would be much more economical than even that. Oh, my gosh. And, okay. and maybe our churches that we serve, that we resource, maybe they could have fun if they have someone that needs to be in, in the program, and they could fund part of it, and then we could fund part of it with grants and donations. 
we're just exploring how that's going to work out right now. Okay. Interesting. Well, yeah, you're right. There's there's a restaurant on every corner almost. Yes, there is. <laughs> and most restaurant managers are crying, just crying for for help that have that help that has some integrity or some life skills. People that'll show up, show up on time. So they're just screaming for those those kind of people. So uh, obviously, our culinary program would be faith-based and we would have we would teach some life skills some faith and finance type classes uh, along with it we would want we want to try to train some people up that have some culinary skills for sure but also have some some life skills also okay wonderful yeah i know you just became familiar with the podcast or aware of it you should go back and listen to it's one of the first 10, Harriet Marmon Helmley. Okay. Uh, she's a CPA, worked in public accounting and industry, and, and actually now she's with an investment firm, but she founded San Antonio Youth Literacy. Okay. Um, because illiteracy is mm-hmm. something that leads to poverty. And so that's, you would enjoy that interview. You really would. And for anybody enjoying this interview, Please go back and listen to Harriet's as well, because there's a lot of common themes there. Okay. Well, this is a good story. Thank, thank you very much. I do want to get to the, the final four questions that I end every podcast with. First of all, what, what has been your proudest moment? Well, I kind of thought about that, but I've got a lot of them. When you get to be 66, you have a lot of those moments, fortunately. <laughs> I guess my proudest would have been uh, my daughter graduated from West Point in 2006, oh. and that would probably be, I was very, very proud of her. That's, that's a very difficult thing to do. Okay. I, I would expect even getting accepted to West Point. That, yeah, you, be, you are. You're pretty proud if just they get accepted. And uh, so it was quite an experience for us. I had not served in the military, oh. so it was kind of eye-opening for us to learn about our military and she that's army west point's army but the it, it's a big it's a big organization it's pretty humongous well and when did she graduate 2006 okay so is she serving in the the forces now no her husband is oh. he's a he's a lieutenant colonel she actually played basketball for army and had torn up both of her ankles. They had reconstructed two ankles. So a month before graduation, they told her they were going to give her a medical discharge. So she got her education and didn't, did not have to serve her five years, but her husband graduated there also. And he, he is in the army. He's a Lieutenant Colonel now and they're stationed in Fairbanks, Alaska. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, she's sort of serving indirectly then. (laughs) Yes, she is. Well, the second question, I keep this in here because I, I think it's important for you know, all of us to be able to learn from others' mistakes. Please tell us about a mistake you've made and, of course, what you learned from it. And, and frankly, the more open and, and colossal it is, the better. Well, we thought about that a little bit. I've made several of those, but probably the biggest one was my partner, my, my first partner in, a, in, my, in the accounting practice. We had probably been in practice about five years, five or ten, five or six, I don't know how many years, several years. And all of our clients were 
mostly big farmers. I'm talking about big farmers. And, you know, we were watching, you know, doing their work, watching them make a lot of money. And we thought we should buy a farm. Oh. So we, we took a lot of money out of our practice and, and bought a farm. And it didn't go very well at all. And so what I learned from that is you, you need to stick with what you know. If we had taken the amount of money we lost on that farm and gone even to another town and bought another accounting practice, something we knew how to, to operate, we would have been, I mean, we wouldn't have lost any money. And so I think that's something people should hear is if they do have an accounting practice, you know, stick with it. If that's what you know, stick with it. Don't venture off unless you're absolutely sure you know what you're doing. I've heard the same thing from a, a few other people, and, and I know a few CPAs that have other businesses, but generally they have someone that is running the operations side. Yeah, and, and sometimes it works, but it's so easy when you have a lot of clients to watch your clients making really good money and think, well, you know, we could do that and make more than the fees they're paying us. And we did, uh, we did buy another business. It was an auto parts business, but that particular business had a lot of accounting involved in it so we could stay on top of it. So I would say be very careful about doing something like that. Okay. Well, third question, and you've touched on several influences throughout your career, but who's been the biggest mentor for you so far? Gosh, I would have to say... Obviously, my first partner was a pretty big mentor, but then when I went into the ministry, I, I went through a school of ministry and had a, a gentleman who was had a theological background, had a PhD in theology, and he probably guided and helped me more in ministry from the theological standpoint. And so I'm, I'm thinking he probably made the biggest impact on me not just from theology, but also just my my relationship with, with God. And I, I would have to say he was. Okay. Just he helped you grow, basically. Yeah. But I obviously, my first partner in my accounting practice was my biggest mentor in accounting. Okay. Is he still in banking, I guess? Or? Uh, you know, he's retired. Okay. Lives, lives in the Dallas area and is retired. Okay. Again, he's... Ten years older than I am, and and, oh, okay. and we have not, and we have not stayed connected at all. I haven't okay. talked to him in years. Okay, I ask because when when people are still in practice or something, I, I like to mention him by name. But yeah, that's yeah. I forgot he was ten years older than you are. <laughs> well, last question, I guess. What's been the best advice you've ever received, or the most impactful advice you've ever received? When I first started the accounting practice, my wife and I. We had lived in a mobile home in college and had moved it to Dalhart and had lived in it a few years. And we found a house we wanted to buy, and it was a banker owned the house, and he was selling it himself. I didn't go through a realtor, so I went to sit down with him, and he said, by the way, that first house only cost me $27,000, but... uh, he was a banker, and he looked at me, and he, he just said, what you need to do is you need to tithe 10% of your income, give 10% of your income to God, and you need to save 10% of your income. 
And you need to learn early in life to live on 80% of what you make. And that's the same advice I would give any young person today. I think it's the smartest advice there is. And if someone's employed and have a job, that's a little easier to to calculate and do. When you're self-employed and you have your own business, it's a little more difficult to, to keep a handle on that. But that would be the best advice I've ever ever heard. I usually don't do this in this section, but but I have to ask because you were self-employed for so long, 30 years or so. Uh-huh. Yeah. And we all know that when you're self-employed, you, you hopefully you have some wonderful years, but you definitely always have some down years. I mean, it, there's, there's, you know, what comes up must come down <laughs> a little bit. What advice would you have for someone to, to be able to keep that, that 10, 10, 80 rule even in the tight years. Any thoughts on that? Or were you able to? Not as well as I should have. You know, I really never did have any lean years in my accounting practice. It seemed like when the economy was the worst, we had more work to do because people were more concerned about paying taxes, more concerned about planning. Mm. So I think, again, the, the hardest part is you just have to pay attention to your expenditures. Again, when you have your own business, it's easy to start taking money out to go do things you want to do without really paying attention to, hey, do I need to take that? Do I need to do that? Or do I need to leave it in there? So I think you've just got to be careful about that and be willing to not take everything out of the business. Okay. Wonderful. Well, there's a, there's a practice management tip in there right at the end. <laughs> Well, thank you very much. If someone wanted to find out more about Daily Bread and and your mission and ministry and and that kind of thing, what's the best place to do that? Do you have a website? Uh, Yeah, go to dbmsa, dbmsa dbmsa.org. You could also go to dailybreadministries.org, but it's a lot longer to type. And so we also have dbmsa.org. And that's the best way. If someone is, we have someone that, and you can get, give us a call, get the phone number, give us a call. We have somebody who sets up tours. A tour of our facility is very, very interesting because we have, we also house a couple of other nonprofits in there. But what we do is very interesting. And then we also have somebody that oversees volunteers. We have a lot of requests for volunteer work and so we, we bring in volunteers. So people would have a chance to come look at us and to even volunteer. Wonderful. And, and we'd love to, love to show it off. <laughs> yes, the new facility. That's right. <laughs> well, thank you again. I really appreciate this. I, I think your, your story is going to be beneficial to, to everybody, particularly on, on how they can apply, you know, the skills they acquire in accounting to, to other areas, you know, as, as they, they think about their, their long-term plan, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I wish you the best in your ongoing growth there, and I hope to run into you again at, at any event here soon. Yeah, well, we will connect. I'd love to connect with you sometime. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Craig. Well, that was my discussion with Craig Fuller, CPA and Executive Director for Daily Bread Ministries. I hope you enjoyed that episode. I realize it was a little different than our typical interviews, but I think that it's important to see that as we grow our careers in accounting, 
those same skills can be put to use in many different areas. Accounting truly gives you a strong overall general business sense and all organizations can benefit from that in their leadership positions. If this is your first time listening to our show, please visit our homepage at www.whereaccountsgo.com to subscribe or listen in on other shows highlighting the careers of everyday heroes in the accounting profession. Or if you're looking to network with other professionals in Texas, please visit the website for Where Accounts Go as well for information on events on the events page on many of the accounting associations from all across the state. Once again, I'm Mark Goldman, your host for Life in Accounting, the Where Accounts Go podcast. As I always say, stay tuned. There's more to come.